Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Association for Linen Management podcast. My name is Nicole Morris, and I'm the Marketing and Communications Manager for ALM. With this podcast, we're hoping to give another way to share information about the textile care industry with you. Many of us travel or at least commute back and forth to our workplaces, and this is an opportunity to get that news without having to sit at your computer and read it on a screen. Before we dig into the interview, I'd like to make just a couple quick announcements. If you are planning on attending the Clean Show, please remember that ALM members get a discount to attend the Clean Show. If you're not currently an ALM member or your ALM membership has lapsed, now is a really great time to update that and to rejoin ALM. We're constantly looking for new ways to provide new services to our members, such as this podcast, and anything else that we can do to make your jobs easier, we're definitely here to do so. Also, registration for the Laundry and Linen College Spring Session is now open. The Laundry and Linen College will be March 25th through the 29th in Richmond, Kentucky, where ALM headquarters is located. Also, if you do not currently receive Fresh Magazine, make sure to subscribe today. Fresh Magazine is a complimentary service that we provide to professionals in the textile care industry. You do not have to be an ALM member to receive it. To register for Clean, Laundry and Linen College, or Fresh Magazine, please visit our website, almnet.org. All right, let's get to the podcast. Today's interview is with Barry Spurlock, Professor of Safety at EKU and a practicing attorney and partner at Crump Spurlock Attorneys of Law. His practice is focused on representing employers in occupational safety and health, as well as employment law matters. He is also a certified safety professional. What we're going to talk about today is the OSHA 300A log, that there were some changes. Um, So first of all, what's the difference between the 300, the 301, and the 300A logs? Okay. Well, the log itself is actually the 300. When we say 300, then we're referring to the actual OSHA log of uh, occupational injuries and illnesses that are recordable, meaning that they go on the log. The the 300 is the log. That's if an injury is serious enough to warrant recordability. And what OSHA defines as serious is not necessarily what you and I would, because getting a prescription is enough to make it serious to go on the log. Hmm. Okay. Not every injury that occurs in the work environment will be recordable. Therefore, not every injury in the work environment goes on the log. But those that meet OSHA's criteria go on the log. Most people keep it electronically. Back in the day, we used to keep paper. Um, OSHA provides you Excel download. You can use uh, a lot of companies have safety management software. Now, the reg does require you to have... You don't have to use their form, but you've got to have something that has the exact same information on it. The 300A is the summary, which really is just numbers derived from the columns of the 300 log, like totaling up the number of days missed from worries. So not the details of each individual Correct. event. Okay. Correct. So that's the 300A. The 300A came about, uh, and, the, and really the big portion of the rule we have right now is is a result of the major change that occurred in 2000. And then the rule became in effect in 2002 that introduced the 300 log 
300A and 301 forms. Before that, we used a 200 log. I'm dating myself because when I was in industry as a practitioner, I kept the 200 log then too, and you'd have to fold back the names and post that thing up every year for a month for employees to see. Well, when OSHA made the change uh, that became effective in 2002, they got rid of the, the requirement to post the actual log and to and protect names of workers. And rather than have employers fold that back, they basically said, just put the totals up on the summary of occupational injury illness, and that's the 300A, and the employers have to post that from February 1 through the end of April of every year uh, so that employees can see. Now, the 301 is basically, it's, it's a case-by-case -case incident report, if you want to think of it. It's probably the best way for me to describe it. It is supposed to be completed for every recorded injury on the log. Okay. Unless the employer keeps the equivalent information on one of its internal forms. So if a company has an incident report and they capture the same information or their incident report, maybe along with the workers' comp information that they may have filled out, captures the same info, the employer does not have to keep the actual 301 form on the format that OSHA has. Okay. Uh, that would be considered equivalent. Most employers would do that. Now, some employers uh, fail to compare their internal incident reports to the 301, and maybe they're not capturing the same information, and that does open the door for you know, scrutiny under OSHA. Okay. However, OSHA does have a partial uh, exemption in, in the record-keeping rule that allows some employers to be what we call partially exempt from record-keeping. Okay. And you can be partially exempt from a portion of the record-keeping reg. And let me back up. The, the 29 CFR 1904 is the regulation on reporting and record-keeping. So it's both reporting and records. The reporting deals with picking up the phone and calling OSHA when something, if, if what we said earlier was serious, this is something that's really serious. Right. They have to phone OSHA if you've had a death. I'll be done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a hospitalization, and it used to be federally three or more. Now it's just one since 2015. Some states have required one, such as Kentucky and Oregon, since way back 2004 and 2006, I think. But um, so if you have a hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye and a death, you have to pick up the phone and call. You can't be partially exempt from that requirement. If you only got two employees, only one employee, still got to phone OSHA if they die or hospitalized. However, you may not have to keep the records, the 300, the 301, and the 300A, if you are partially exempt and you do that one of two ways, one being size and the other one being certain industries. Size is if you had 10 or fewer employees for the entire previous calendar year, you would meet the size exemption. Okay. Now, in counting that, you have to look at the entire organization, not just a site, even though a site with fewer than 10 may have to keep its own OSHA log because it's deemed an establishment. To see if you're partially exempt, they look for the entire company count. Okay. Most of ALM's members will not meet the size exemption because they're going to have more than that, and you would include temporaries on that. So if you control their day-to-day -day operations, they go into your count. By the way, they also go on your log if they get hurt. Okay. Uh, it's really who's can control of supervising day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, some temp agencies or contractors say, well, we have a supervisor on site. Well, the only thing that supervisor does is hand out paychecks, but the host employer's telling them when to show up, providing the tools, the equipment, controlling them like they would another employee. They're going to go on the host employer's 
So if they're working under the roof, they're counted in the count and they need to be reported if they get hurt. Yes, on the host employer's log, unless they do have a supervisor there who's really directing those workers' activities, which usually that's not the case, not in your all's members. You see that more with a construction company or something where the subcontractors right, really right. control the work. They won't go on, somebody like that. Um, but anyway, you look at the count to determine partial exemption. That's one way. The other one is to be in a list, a certain list of industries. That doesn't matter how many employees, if you're in this industry, you're not part of it, such as a real estate office, I think, is still on there, hmm. banks and stuff like that, where it's mainly just purely clerical stuff, a real estate agency or something. They're partially exempt because they're on their North American Industrial Classification Code is in a certain group. Okay. But most general industry, which is most of the members of ALM, don't fit either of those. Okay. So... I would venture to say at least probably 95% of all ALM's members uh, will have to, they won't be partially exempt, so they're, they need to keep the 300 log. they got to post the 300A from February 1 to April 30th every year, and they either have to have a 301 for every recordable or an equivalent form in place of that. Okay. The whole reason that this is even kind of our topic for this year is because the due date in that has changed and that now it's due, is it the end of March? March the 2nd. Okay. Or the beginning of March. Okay. And it currently, or last year, it was July, I believe. Yes. In July. For 2017 data. So what is the reason, I mean, why the, the, was that three, four month shift? Why, why that change? I mean, what's, what does that 90 days get us? What happens is that that 90-day window right now is they're going to be uploading 2018 data. Okay. So OSHA's giving the employers a chance to make sure everything's totaled up. And not to mention, you know, injury occurs late December. You might not know how many days are missing until February or whatever. Right. And um, so that gives employers the time to get the 2018 tallies and all that kind of stuff and upload it through that. The prior delays dealt one, the first delay, some, it's a multitude of reasons for prior delays. One dealing with OSHA had to get the injury tracking application ready, okay. which was when the rule was final, weren't ready to up receive the data. Okay, we don't have the program ready. Okay. And then some of the other delays dealt with the fact that people were calling us in the question and there were pending, there's pending litigation. So some of the delays dealt with to see how that that was going to out as well. What are some of the biggest mistakes made when people are reporting or when businesses are reporting injuries and illnesses? What what do you see? And one of the probably one of the biggest mistakes and, and I'll divide that because reporting is one thing and recording is another. Okay. Uh, big, big mistakes made in reporting obviously is timely because you know you've got eight hours to report a fatality. At 24 hour, and this is speaking from a federal perspective, like Kentucky has different time frames. Um, so you've got to double check if you're in a state plan state, know what the time frames are there of reporting things versus the federal if you're a federal plan state. Uh, missing the deadline to report a serious injury like a fatality, hospitalization is one of the biggest issues that I've seen. I've uh, represented employers on these issues. Uh, you know, the employer really the clock starts ticking whenever they know about the injury. When I say employer, I mean somebody who's in an agency type capacity with the with the company, a supervisor, manager, foreman, something like that. That starts the clock ticking. 
And it doesn't matter if it's the weekend or holidays or what have you. You've got 24 hours to report hospitalizations, single hospitalizations, uh, amputation, loss of an eye, uh, eight hours on a fatality or hospitalization of two or more people. And that's from a federal standpoint. Uh, who to call? Like if it's business hours, you're going to call an area OSHA office. They usually have a number for that. If it's an after hours, calling that. Federal allows you to do it through the website, too. Some states don't. Kentucky does not, which I think is a good idea, but uh, that's just my opinion. <laughs> uh, missing the deadline on reporting. We're not understanding what certain things are, like uh, loss of an eye. I've, I've seen some employers pick up the phone and call OSHA when they really didn't have to because they didn't understand the rule. You know, like, oh, the person's been at the hospital for 16 hours in the ER. That That's the same as a hospitalization. Well, no, the rule says admitted to the inpatient services of the hospital. Okay. And sometimes they draw unnecessary attention. But on the converse, I've seen them not call in time. So it's it's really knowing the reporting requirements. On recording the records we keep, the 300 log, namely, uh, the, big, the mistakes I find normally come in when an employer applies logic <laughs> or common sense to some of this. Uh, there are certain things that they would think, oh, this has to be work-related, or there is no way this could be work-related, not understanding that the process for determining if something goes on the log is, is basically this. One, is it an injury or illness? Well, that's a really low bar. It's an abnormal condition, what OSHA defines. The next question, if we, it's like a flowchart. If we get a yes there, we move to the next step. Is right. it work-related? Well, OSHA starts the definition of work-related, that work-related is presumed if an injury occurs in the work environment from an event or exposure, and that's those two E words, and the P word, presumed event exposure in the work environment, we start off presuming it's work-related, and then we see, are there exceptions? And uh, knowing that work does not have to be the sole cause, it just has to be a cause of it. You only have to do it if it's a discernible cause. And they said, well, he doesn't know how he got hurt, therefore it's not discernible. Oh, that's not what that means. <laughs> that simply means like if my job is doing data entry all day and all of a sudden I tear my ACL and I never fell at work, well, it's not discernible that from doing data entry I'd tear my ACL absent a fall or something in the work environment. That's what it's referring to, not the employee doesn't know, because if the employee comes to you on a Monday and says, hey, you know, my back's hurt and my shoulders are hurt, and they lift bundles of laundry all the time, and they're like, I don't know how else I did it. Is it discernible that lifting stuff at work could cause those kind of injuries? Absolutely. That triggers the presumption. That's an event or exposure. And then you got to look for exceptions. So I see a lot of mistakes with determining work-relatedness. I think, you know, another common mistake you know, that employers make when it comes to record-keeping is confusing or intertwining workers' compensation law and workers' comp determinations with OSHA record keeping, that the two of those things are separate. I mean, the OSHA record keeping derives from a federal law, which states can't change the recording part. They can't have their own definition of a recordable or of a lost time claim. They can't change that. States have to use the federal system for that. And, um, and there's a purpose. There's a national data collection. They're wanting to look at that. Workers' comp is unless we're talking about a federal employee or some you know, federal contract that might bring it into a federal issue, it's largely, 99% of the time, is a state law issue. And every state's workers' comp laws are different. 
the question in workers' comp is compensability. And the answer to that is, I mean, how we determine that is, did it arise out of in the course of employment? The terms recordable and compensable are not the same terms. And some employers will say, well, workers' comp denied the workers' comp claim, therefore it's not recordable. Well, that's not always safe. There are some injuries that are compensable under workers' comp but will not be recordable under OSHA, and vice versa. There could be a recordable that a carrier may deny from a compensability standpoint, probably less likely the latter situation, more likely the, the former. An illustration of that would be, you know, OSHA has a really clear exception on work-relatedness for, for travel status injuries. They say once the worker has established home away from home, um, no longer necessarily in the services of the, or performing a service for the employee. At the end of the day, maybe they went back to hotel, went to dinner. Probably you get hurt there. Not going to be compens- uh, Not going to be recordable because it's not work related right. by OSHA. Workers' comp. That's a whole different story. Usually, most all travel injuries, unless they've taken a detour, they're on some kind of excursion, misconduct, or something that really takes it out the scope of the employment, will still be compensable under workers' comp, but not necessarily recordable. For example, if I'm laying in my hotel at night and I'm on business travel and the roof falls in and I'm hurt, not going to be work-related under OSHA, but it will probably be compensable. I noticed I said probably because there's no guaranteed black and white and a lot right. of that stuff. But that will most likely be compensable under workers' comp. So big mistake employers make is thinking the two of these areas are intertwined and connected there's no legal connection at all between the two. Linking back to old cases, the rule says, you know, if somebody completely recovers, it ends up being a new case uh, on, on the log. So you might have multiple injuries for the same worker, same problem, if they fully recovered. Or maybe it's the same problem and now it's not the right shoulder, it's the left shoulder. Okay. Uh, that's the new case errors I see. And then on recording criteria, there's there's, you know, 14 things that are considered first aid. It's not one of those 14 things, and it's something we do for the care or management of an injury or illness. Not diagnostic, like an x-ray is diagnostic. It's not first aid, but it's diagnostic. It has no therapeutic value. Whereas an ultrasound could be one or the other, and employers really got to find out, well, was it a physical therapist giving the ultrasound to stimulate blood flow to therapy, or were they trying to diagnose a problem, and that was it. Seldom do you get ultrasound without also getting something that triggers what we call medical treatment, which could be getting the employee gets a prescription. doesn't matter if they take it or not, or even get it filled. Did the doctor write a prescription? Well, that makes, that's called medical treatment. It makes it recordable. Okay. And a lot of times it doesn't matter who gave the treatment. Um, supervisor or management imposed restrictions on a job, on an injured worker beyond the date of injury or onset of symptoms can trigger restricted duty or light duty. They sent them home, you know, he lost time. Mm-hmm. Just because the doctor didn't send them home doesn't mean it's lost time. Other than that, you know, a supervisor can't restrict duty or send someone home or transfer them to another job beyond the date of injury without that also triggering the court. Okay. There's a lot of nuances in, in medical treatment that I see people make mistakes with. Not having the logs on hand, you got to have five years' worth. What are the implications if you don't report as required? Um, failure to report or or record or record either one, uh, you know, subject you to a citation. The 
current provision. Now, in a federal plan state, you know, the, the penalties have been increasing steadily. If we go by what OSHA is issuing federally, and if you're in a federal plan state, you know, the, the willful violations right at $127,000. Know, it's changed the moving target. And I'm getting to the point now, I can't keep the exact change in my head, but once you get up to that, it doesn't matter what's in the hundreds figure. <laughs> hundreds, tens, and ones usually don't matter. It's around 127 grand for a repeat. But for a serious, or in the serious is up to record keeping, or reporting, or posting requirement, it can go up to same as a serious violation, say, made for a machine guard, which is around $13,000. Now, that's the money associated with it. And a lot of companies, I mean, many times OSHA doesn't necessarily go to the, you know, the jugular and give somebody the high monetary penalty for a record keeping violation. Um, it might not. It might be a fraction of that. Maybe they issue, I had a client once, and they were cited for not reporting in a timely manner. It was $6,600. And not a big deal, but when you got multiple sites, and, and now if another site doesn't report in time, and what are the odds of that, you could get issued a repeat for that. Mm -hmm. So sometimes deciding whether or not you're going to contest the citation is more about, well, I understand the fine's only $4,000, and we may pay the attorney six to fight this. But if you're successful and you avoid the repeat, there's a huge risk offset there. So you got to look at for repeat as well. But you can get cited up to that amount, like since around 13000 You can get cited. And record-keeping citations can carry the same monetary penalty as maybe a machine guarding or failure to lock out a tag out. But this is what I tell employers. The distinction with record keeping or reporting violations is it, to me, and it's my experience, carries a different connotation. Because if we're talking about records, it's management's job to keep the records. Mm -hmm. And if we get cited because our records aren't right, it implies trust, mm -hmm. trust issues. If we get cited for machine guarding, people are like, well, that's Joe Schmo. Joe always takes the machine guard off, and he took it off the day OSHA was here. It's on Joe. Mm -hmm. But when the records aren't right, management doing? Mm -hmm. Are they cooking the books? And it creates a different connotation. And to me, that's one of the bigger concerns I think employers have to have. And you know, you got to post citations for employees to see. And anymore, you know, OSHA does press releases on these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the word gets out that your record-keeping violation with OSHA, what might your customers think about other aspects of that? Or mm -hmm. your stockholders or investors or other people think about what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think that's something employers have to think about when they talk about OSHA records. Is getting cited for it carries a connotation that can't be measured necessarily in dollars and fines and stuff like that. What advice do you have for companies about the reporting and recording? Well, first of all is knowing what you don't know. I share this quote a lot when I do some employment law for safety professional seminars and record keeping. Quote by Mark Twain, he said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. There's a lot of aspects to the OSHA record keeping rule that aren't always intuitive. And it really requires digging in deep to the, to the rule and knowing you know, who you're responsible for reporting, what you're responsible for. And the same goes with recording. In auditing these records, I mean, um, some companies, you know, will, will audit OSHA records through attorney-client privilege just to, you know, protect the communications and stuff and make sure they get things right. 
that way uh, so that it doesn't look like, hey, we have this willful violation because willful is a whole different thing. Um, I'm not saying they have to do that, but knowing, getting, digging in deep with the rule and auditing the records, making sure. Um, some other advices, I, this is not from a regulatory perspective. This is me now speaking as the safety professional. It's what improves safety performance. Undue focus on these OSHA injury numbers, which are not safety performance numbers, because I can get lucky and have low injuries. I can manage claims and get low numbers, injury numbers. When I put an undue focus on those numbers, it tends to make them less reliable. It tends to tempt us to say, hey, can we not record this one? Billy didn't take the prescription. There's nothing in the hospital records that says he got one. The only reason we know it's because he got a prescription. He said he threw it away. So let's not put that down. Mm -hmm. And they take the chance. And then who knows? They might talk to Billy on an ocean inspection and find out that he did and you didn't record it. Mm -hmm. And it's just the undue pressure on the number that really doesn't tell us the picture of safety because measuring safety for us is about what we do to prevent injuries, identify hazards, and control hazards. It's not about how we manage claims. Now, managing claims is important, don't get me wrong, but don't confuse injury management with safety management. Those right. are two different things. Right. <laughs> and um, I encourage employers to resist the temptation to put an undue focus on OSHA injury record, uh, injury rates and numbers. Be honest with the records. Don't get cited for that. Um, now, you know, I understand OSHA is paying more attention to these numbers and uh, like with the site-specific targeting plans when they look at companies' DART rates, uh, and that's based off of 300-day that they're now having to upload. Um, they might end up on an inspection target list. I, I get that. So I understand there is a need to manage claims. And like, again, I'm not saying don't manage injuries, but don't make the focus so much on that number that you don't keep accurate records. If I could give one piece of safety wisdom, it's that, you know, and, uh, make sure they're accurate. Don't record things like, well, just to be safe, we'll write everything down. Well, no, that's not right either. <laughs> so it's really, there's just no substitution for knowing the rule, being able to apply the rule. Well, thank you very much. And this is excellent. And I'm sure that's going to be very, very helpful to all of our members and other professionals in the industry. So I appreciate your time. Now you know more about record keeping than you ever cared to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>